1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Previously on Mentally Yours, for a long time I didn't want to acknowledge how I was feeling and so when I had my first daughter, I, I went through a very traumatic pregnancy and childbirth. Um, after that, she was born in India, so there was a lot of support, uh, social support around. But mental health wasn't something that anybody talked about or postnatal depression. I didn't even know that there was anything like that.
0: It's mentally yours from men and i focus on your mental health you surely
1: won't regret It's Mentally, 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 yours. mentally Yours Mentally Yours, Mentally Yours Hello everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly mental health podcast. I'm Yvette and this week it's just me on my own. I'm going to be chatting to Paula Bell. She's an author, she's written a book called Chase the Rainbow And she's also a top journalist. She's written all over the place, including The Guardian, The Pool and The HuffPost. I'm going to be chatting to her about addiction and suicide. So we're going to be chatting about your book, Chase the Rainbow. Um, Can you tell us a bit about why you wanted to write it?
2: it's a memoir meets journalism uh covers suicide addiction mental illness which sounds pretty full on but actually it's a story of my life with my husband rob who passed away about three years ago by suicide the reason why i wrote it is because when he was alive and i was helping him with his um illness so he had chronic depression um and also struggled with addiction, is that there wasn't a huge amount of resource out there to help me understand what he was going through. And then subsequently after he passed away, um, you know, suicide is so taboo, or there wasn't anything that I found that articulated that experience. So the book is two things, really. It's the book that I wish that I'd had. um, So therefore it's for other people that might be going through something similar, wanted them to feel less alone and a bit comforted by it, Also, it was for me to be able to make sense of what we had gone through and his passing.
1: Do you mind telling us a little bit about um, your relationship with Rob? Sort of to start with, how did you meet?
2: We met through a mutual friend on a blind date, actually. Um, Very shortly after I vowed that I was not going to have anything to do with men because I just had a really terrible bout of dating. So when we met, I was pretty fed up, but he managed to push through all of that. He was never been on a date with a Kiwi before. He's from New Zealand, um, which as it goes, uh, don't want to deal in stereotypes, but very relaxed people and quite easygoing. So he was also ridiculously clever, uh, worked as a science journalist, but he, from very, very early on, seemed to have these amazing contradictions about him. So he was this you know, shaven-headed punk rocker uh, also liked gardening and would go to the houses of the old older ladies in our street and help them with their gardening. Or, you know, uh, massively passionate about food and so on. Um, about four weeks after we started dating, we were on our way to a restaurant in a cab, and he just said, "You know, there's something I need to tell you, but it's not a big deal." And honestly, the tone of how he framed it—I don't think he was concealing it from me. I think for him. In his mindset at that point in time, it wasn't a big deal because he wasn't ill. So he just said, you know, I, I have had depression before. I do suffer from it from time to time, but I don't want you to worry about it. It's something I will have in hand. And if I need to go to the doctor, then I'll go to the doctor. And at that time, bear in mind, we're talking about a completely different m- landscape when it comes to mental health. So we're talking about 2009. I didn't really know what depression was, if I'm being honest. I thought it was being a bit sad, possibly, and then it passes fairly quickly with some medication. So I didn't really know what questions to ask him. And what he was actually telling me was that he had chronic depression which is very different to um let's say a depression that might come about if there's a life event such as a bereavement or a divorce right and he also seemed very confident and had it in hand so i didn't really ask any further questions about it um if i know if i if i knew then what i know now i would be very honest it would be um a completely different conversation
1: so when you had that first sort of initial conversation when he said that he had depression how did you then go about supporting him
2: after he said that he had depression i mean it was very gradual so he told me this was probably a couple of years into our relationship i'm just feeling a little bit depressed i'm going to go to my doctor uh they're going to prescribe me some mild antidepressants and that will be fine except it he seemed to get a bit better but then Over time and again this was gradual so I didn't really notice it wasn't like it you know he was fine one day and then um, really depressed the next but his behavior got incrementally worse and when I refer to behavior I mean very withdrawn uh, wasn't really socializing with his friends very much if we arranged anything that was a social gathering he might turn up more often than not he would cancel just before we had to leave the house and also just with me um he was a lot more withdrawn and closed off about his feelings i I sort of this was a question that i would ask over and over again like a broken record you know are you okay and the response would be yeah i'm fine you know i'm absolutely fine don't worry i think you're worrying too much i'm fine and and he clearly wasn't fine and at the beginning i just think i thought you know okay he's depressed i have no idea what this feels like. So there are certain things that he's finding it quite hard to do, like get up get out of bed, go and do the supermarket shop, hang out as a couple. We're married and this is maybe the in sickness part of in sickness and in health and I just need to, you know, rally together and help him through this. So um in between, you know, just trying to keep our household afloat, I just try not to put too much pressure on him in terms of you know, making him feel like he should be a certain way or he should be doing this or he should be doing that. And then at certain periods, things would pass. And I mean, the way I'm describing it to you, it sounds like, you know, there were terrible days, but it really wasn't like that. And it's so much more complicated than that. And it's not even like we had, you know, more than a couple of days of... um of him being completely withdrawn. There were days where he'd be withdrawn maybe for a bit of that day and then in the evening he'd be okay-ish and we'd have dinner um, and we'd laugh and we'd talk. it's very difficult to explain that to people because the minute you say that they just assume that you know you you just had like days and days of blackness and it wasn't like that.
1: When you said sort of about those conversations you had when you were asking him you know are you okay and he was just sort of saying I'm fine I think probably a lot of listeners can relate to that
2: sort of thing. Do you have any thoughts on maybe why he
1: felt why he found it hard to open
2: up? My take on it is that um, so I'm quite passionate when it comes to talking about for example men's mental health. Um, I mean I'm not saying that I'm great, for example, at opening up about my feelings. In fact, I'm notoriously bad at asking for help. So by no means am I saying that women aren't, aren't, you know, predisposed to this as well. But I definitely find that as a gender, um, there is a really big problem when it comes to men in terms of being able to articulate what's going on. So um, for him, definitely knowing the kind of person that he was, um, yes, very gentle, kind, incredibly thoughtful, also an alpha male who basically struggled with the idea of him being ill and him not being able to think his way out of it, despite being hugely scientific and intelligent and understanding how it all works. I remember at a really low point for him when he was pretty upset. He just said, you know, I just want to be normal. I just don't I don't want to be the type of person that has to be on medication for the rest of my life. Um and so for a lot of especially the beginning years of our marriage, I think he felt that he had promised me a certain life or a way of living, wasn't really living up to it because you know, he was ill and therefore just wanted to try and make it seem like everything was fine and, you know, and, and to keep it as normal as possible when actually it wasn't it wasn't normal. And I just, you know, the, I don't have a lot of regrets um, around things. But one thing I just really wish that he had understood, I, I mean, and I did try and tell him this, was that normality wasn't really what I was What I wanted from him. I just needed him to be able to connect with me and to say, um, I'm struggling and this is really hard. And for me to help him through that, because that's what I signed up for. You know, I never really thought that I was going to get married. I got married because I had completely committed to being in a relationship with him and helping him. Vice versa, as I expected him to help me when I was struggling. But I don't think he ever really overcame that kind of inner bias towards himself. And also he grew up in New Zealand, which is hugely macho in its culture in terms of being able to, you know, the expectation of, of men stuffing it down and not admitting to what's going on. their emotions. And having spent three months in New Zealand at the beginning part of this year, I can definitely vouch for that kind of culture.
1: We sort of see a lot more on things like social media and online. But do you think generally men sort of are having more conversations sort of with maybe their mates or whatever?
2: I I think it depends on the context. So for example, let's say I, I tend to have men who will send me emails or mates who will open up to me or even my own father. Because they know that I have a particular point of view around men and men's mental health. And also just having dealt with someone who was in, you know, the grips of a very big addiction, that I am probably less likely to hold a judgment around whatever it is that they need to confess to or talk to about certain things. So what that tells me is that men are willing to do that. And actually, the majority of men in my life have been able to do that. I don't necessarily think they are replicating those conversations with other mates of theirs. So for the current generation of men, for sure, and, uh, and older and, you know, going up to my dad's generation, I mean, he's 70, is that they need to know that you've either been through something similar, um, or to sense check that there is a level of understanding there, quite frankly. And for a lot of people, there may not be a level of understanding there. And also, I know that we've moved this conversation on, but just the fact that which a lot of men's groups are kind of getting to, which is that you're, you're not necessarily going to have a guy who will phone up his mate and start talking about his feelings on the phone. Like That's just pretty rare if that happens. So actually a massive unifying thing is activities or being part of social events and so on, where there's an environment where you can bond and you can open up, or you might not want to, or you just actually may need some human contact outside your personal life or your social, your current social circle. But where I think the change is really, really happening is definitely in schools. And it's definitely amongst teenage boys. So of course, we absolutely need to address what's going on with our current generation of men. But I think we also need to be heavily, heavily focusing on that conversation around boys and especially teenage boys as well.
1: That's covered a lot. Can we go back to the point you mentioned about um, your husband's addiction? How did those two things sort of interplay? Were they fundamentally connected in your view?
2: Yeah, so he had a dual diagnosis, which is quite problematic when you are the other person trying to figure out how to deal with one thing, let alone two. I went to go and speak to his psychiatrist. So this was the first time he stayed um, in a psychiatric hospital. And he asked me to come in to chat to his psychiatrist, because we needed to figure out a plan of action once he left. And I asked the psychiatrist that question, I just said, which came first, the addiction or the mental illness, and the psychiatrist basically couldn't answer the question. So he just said, you know, it's did he develop a mental illness as a consequence of being an addict or did he develop his addiction as a consequence of suffering from mental illness? My understanding of it, having gone back, spoken to members of Rob's family, gone through Rob's notes that he's left on his computer, is that actually his depression started pretty young. So before he would have really used substances. And what we now know about um, depression, so for example, it can affect kids as young as six, seven, I think. I think that he developed depression quite young. And then when he became a teenager, which, as you notoriously know, um, manifests itself into an adult mental illness, however, you're still a kid and you're still trying to grapple that world of being a kid and being an adult. And I know he started using substances. So, you know, like alcohol and weed when he was a teenager. However, having spoken to some of his friends, he wasn't a full on addict when he was a teenager. I mean, he was recreationally using stuff in as much as most of us probably did at that age. When we got together, I knew that he recreationally used drugs. If I'm being honest with you, I kind of hated it because it's not that I'm anti-drug. It's just that I think I always knew. And I've dated you know people before that have used drugs. Um, and I don't, but that's never really been a problem. But I felt with Rob that there was a slight edge to his using. He would call it recreational, but I always felt that it was always slightly a step. Too far with him, um, and when we were together, he was an addict for to heroin for about three years and i didn 't know that entire time that he was had no previous experience of you know what heroin use looked like, what symptoms um, associated with it, so when he eventually told me that he was an addict, I was just gobsmacked and not just because you know heroin is like that bogeyman of drugs right where you're told that it's the worst of the worst drugs uh, which, by the way, I don't really think that there's a hierarchy when it comes to drug use. So since I've changed my mind about that, but also it was it wasn't just about depression and it wasn't about addiction. It was about being fundamentally betrayed that this person who I loved and trusted more than anyone else in the world had not told me about this massive thing that had been going on with him for as long as it had. So there was a lot of upset about that. But then if I'm being honest, very quickly, that coalesced into, oh, my God, he needs help like straight away, because he's been dealing with this for a very long time. He has been completely alone in his head around this and must have expended huge amounts of energy, not just while he was ill. So A, he was ill. B, was obviously struggling with his addiction, trying to get clean. And C, was trying to keep all of it from me so that he could sort his life out so that I would never find out what was going on. I honestly had no idea how he managed to muster up the energy for that. I think for me personally, it was very challenging dealing with it when he was in relapse mode because the reason for that being not because he had relapsed but because a lot of his relapse was punctuated by him not telling me that he had relapsed even though I could see the signs I knew what was going on so what I was dealing with and you know he wrote me a letter about this what I was dealing with was someone that was dealing with all of the stuff that we both knew what was going on but I couldn't actually help him because he wouldn't admit that that is what had happened and so very challenging because I couldn't really talk to my family members or my friends about what was going on because I didn't really want them to judge Rob if he came into their homes. And I wanted that to still be a space for him that he felt as normal as possible. But I think the stuff I definitely got angriest about was around addiction. And it wasn't because of the nature or the fact that he was an addict, it was just being lied to. How did he hide that sort of behaviour? I mean, yeah, looking I mean, back now, do, do you see that there were sort of signs? God, yeah. I mean, the minute he told me he was an addict, it was like the light bulb of, oh my God, this explains so much of what's been going on. But, I mean, he managed to get away with it for a number of reasons. I He worked from home, I worked in an office. Um, a lot of the symptoms, especially when things got really bad he would explain away as depression. So, for example, lying in bed when he was actually withdrawing. Mm. The one time when I got really worried and I just said, I think we need to go to A&E and he was like, no, 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 don't worry, I'll be fine, was some, he must have had like extremely bad stomach cramps as a result of him withdrawing. OK, so there's all of that. There's factoring in that I didn't really know what um, heroin withdrawal looked like and definitely heroin use. And also, I mean, I get it, because when I read in the papers that someone's partner was a heroin addict, and that's my first thing of, oh, my God, but how did they not know? And Why didn't they help them? Is that he was my husband. So I trusted him. Absolutely. Like, for me to have made a connection between this is the best person I know in my entire life, to something's deeply wrong. Oh, yeah, he must be a heroin addict. Like, my brain could never have made that jump. Like it never would have made it unless he had actually told me what was going on. And even stuff like, you know, massive telltale sign was his finances, because I knew he was working, but he yet seemed to be in thousands upon thousands of debt or pounds of debt. Um, and he just explained that as invoices hadn't come through or he was paying credit card fees, which, yes. To a certain extent he was paying credit card fees, but uh, that money was spent on drugs, and he wouldn't let me see his finances like I would challenge anyone to be able to tell me how they could force their partner, who is an adult human, to show them or tell them something that the other person doesn't really want to do. It was kind of impossible
1: it seems to me that this addiction is kind of one of the last sort of areas of mental health where there's still a huge amounts of stigma. What can we do? to sort of break the stigma around that one particular kind of
2: addiction. So I interviewed two recovering heroin addicts and they said that in their rehab facility they corroborated what I think I already knew which was that they get stigmatised in there by other addicts um, because they're they're heroin users as opposed to cocaine or alcohol Um, a number of people will tell you that there is no hierarchy when it comes to substance abuse because it is marked by pretty much um, very similar uh, patterns of behaviour. And really, when it comes down to it, you are talking about someone that is using a substance that they are unable to stop using, that is probably causing untold, unimaginable pain to them as a person and most likely to any loved ones that they have in their lives. And even if they are functioning on it, it, it's functioning up to a point. So, you know, in NA, they say very frequently, which is that you've pretty much got um, three options open to you, you're going to either end up in prison, you will either end up dead, or you end up in recovery. What I personally think is that this stuff should be taught about in school. I mean, when I was taught about drugs in school, it was ecstasy. It was a story of Betts, And you are told that drugs kill you, but you aren't given any of the information in between because people are petrified of doing that because it's going to encourage drug use. Like spoiler alert, like the UK in Europe is the addiction capital of Europe. You know, for example, when you look at countries like Portugal that decided to go for harm minimization techniques or basically to legalize let's say, opiate use or heroin use, um, it dramatically reduced, if not reduced, the use of heroin. But we don't have that kind of policy in the UK. We employ the same uh, policy that the US does, which is highly draconian. And also the US is in a state, a national state of emergency around opiate use. Mm-hmm. So my kind of take on it is that, yes, it is a highly stigmatized drug but the way that we are approaching it isn't really working. Yes, there is a massive problem in terms of we have um we have a view of alcoholism which is that it's not so bad for some reason. I mean, I know people's lives have been utterly decimated by alcoholism, but it is a drug that in the UK, it's it's an acceptable drug to use. Um it's we normalize the fact that um you know, hangovers are totally fine, that blackouts are totally fine. If you replace alcohol with any other substance would you, I, I can't, I mean, in my my brain struggles to wrap itself around that. Like, if I said that you are using this drug that regularly causes you to black out, to indulge in dysfunctional behavior, really bad decision making, but I replace the word alcohol with any other one of those drugs, your, your attitude around it would completely change. And that to me, I mean, I, I remember going to a support group and... You know, when I you kind of go around the group and you very briefly say what your story is, and so when there's a new member, you might kind of recount your story so that they know who you are. And there was a lady whose son was uh, an alcoholic, and when I when it was my turn, you know, afterwards she said to me, "Oh gosh, you know, I don't know how." I feel so sorry for you and I'm so sorry that you have to go through that. And I didn't say this because it would have been rude, but I just wanted to say, please don't do that. Like, don't assume that my situation is worse because my husband is a heroin user as opposed to your son who uses alcohol because alcohol use is far more chaotic, not to, God, this always makes me sound like I'm advocating one over the other and I'm not, I'm just, what I'm trying to say is that like with alcohol use, there is such chaotic roller coaster like behaviour that is... It's far more likely to be dangerous and impact the, um, you know, how it affects your loved one's lives. I'm not saying that heroin doesn't utterly devastate families as well, but I just don't think that there's you can't just there's no checklist of like one that affects more than the other. And that's why I don't really believe in the hierarchy. Like I've seen the damage that like all of those cause to families' lives.
1: We haven't actually talked a great amount yet about um, suicide. The main thing that I'd like to know really is how did you deal with
2: it? I didn't really have a strategy. I think when it first all happened, it is extremely complicated because there's the illusion of choice, right? So if you are the loved one left behind there's the illusion that you could have done something to prevent it. There is a massively irrational, illogical part of me that will always feel responsible or will always feel slightly guilty because he was my husband. If anyone should have been looking out for him, it should have been me. However, the rational bigger part of me knows that you can't be responsible for another person's life. You just can't. Even if you are in a hospital being watched, the person watching you cannot watch you every single minute of the day, 24 seven. Reconciling some of that was hugely important for me to be able to do that and to make sure that I still had very, very regular contact with my in-laws, which I do. um, And, you know, we Skype quite regularly. But I think that it was understanding or trying to understand what Rob was going through. So there were books that I bought to try and understand what the suicidal mind was like. And I think understanding the the mental state that he would have been in. Don't get me wrong, there is not a single moment of a single day that doesn't wish that the outcome was different. But I also know that it is impossible for me to understand. And this is, this is why... I've never felt angry uh, towards him about taking his own life. I just cannot understand, I cannot imagine the pain that a person must be in to get to that point where they actually carry that out as an act. Because if I was to even think about it right now, it's something that my brain completely recoils from. And even in the aftermath of his passing, when I just thought, I don't really know how to do this. And I don't, see how there's going to come a point where I don't feel this sad or I don't feel this horrendous even at that point there is not really a part of me that would have taken my own life to escape that kind of pain I don't know that you ever really reconcile a death from suicide it's famously a death that has no closure to it because obviously the person that you want to ask the answer of why is no longer here but I think that trying to empathise and understand where they were and why they felt compelled to do that offers some sense of absolution around what you should have done about it. I did go to a suicide bereavement support group, which has been immensely helpful for other people. However, I think I went to that group slightly too early on in my grief. So I went there maybe about two or three months in and I just found it too much to listen to the stories of other people Maybe now that I'm about three years in, I could probably go back and actually be in a position to offer comfort or help other people. But for me, I don't think support groups are, are my jam at the moment. Um, and, but instead, what I've replaced that with actually is this immensely amazing online community of people who've been affected by whether it's um, mental illness or suicide, addiction, bereavement, whatever it may be, where we're able to have those conversations in a space that is comfortable for me versus going into a room and sitting around in a circle. Has it been difficult for you hearing other people's stories? It massively helped, actually. So a month after Rob passed away, when I was just completely lost in what was going on and didn't really feel as if I could talk about it at work or with my friends and family, and a big part of that wasn't because they weren't supportive. I just felt that they would not understand how I was feeling. I wrote this blog, which was an open letter to Rob, and at the bottom of it, I put my email address, And I was very nervous about doing that, but I had hundreds of people who emailed and my friends were really concerned because they thought, you know, is this going to just be too much for you to take on? But those emails, without sounding overly dramatic about it, they got me through that following month and I've still kept some of them and I reread them. They were lots of different experiences of people. So either someone who had felt suicidal or or, and had come through it or wanted to explain to me what he may have been going through or people that had lost someone. I mean, I, I just couldn't even tell you how much those letters meant because the biggest thing about it was that it made me feel like I wasn't alone in my experience. And since I have written the book, I... About once a week, we'll get a letter from someone that has written, has read the book and has written me a letter um, to tell me what it has meant to them. The whole point of that book was for it to be a lantern to someone that was feeling quite dark or lost or alone in their experience. So, to me, actually, I don't, if I'm being very honest, it's not about book sales and it's not about social media reach or anything like that it it just means so much for one person to be able to read it and to have taken some comfort and understanding from it and that to me sometimes it can be difficult to hear people's stories especially if they might be a little bit graphic in them but quite honestly that that's very rare like more often than not it's hugely supportive and if I can, and I am in a position to to write back and to tell them if I'm a bit further on in my journey in terms of grief than they might be, and that is what other people did for me when I was at a point very early on in my grief and didn't know what the hell was going on.
1: You mentioned you're still very close with your in-laws. How have they reacted, responded um, to your blogs, your writing, and to your book?
2: My mother-in-law and father-in-law are incredibly supportive. And when I was thinking about writing the book, we did have a conversation about it, because there's no way I would have written it if they weren't okay with it. I think for them, as it is for me, is that there is nothing we can do to bring Rob back. You know, nothing is going to change that. What this is about for both of us sorry for the three of us is that um it's about legacy so it's about a death not being in vain i can imagine that for them they they struggle with their grief as do i um it doesn't it's not something that ever really goes away but the fact that his story actually helps even if it helped like one person it's it was worth telling the story
1: Thanks very much to Porna. So that was a really interesting chat for me. A few things sort of stood out. One of the things that really stood out for me was basically um, the discussion that we had about heroin use. She talked about the stigma around heroin use, which I found really interesting. Um, A lot of the things that she said, obviously she talked about how our society normalises alcohol abuse and the way that, say, somebody might regularly go out, um, drink lots but then end up having blackouts from alcohol and then hangovers the next day. But then people just think, oh, well, you know, that's just maybe being at university or that's just, you know, being one of the lads or something. Whereas if you have those effects from a drug, then it's taken a lot more seriously. So I thought that was quite interesting, the way that we put different substances in different categories like that. I also thought it was very interesting um, what she said about the different sort of stereotypes I think people have a kind of image in their heads of what a heroin addict looks like, you know, what they might do. Um, but the reality is lots of different substances can be abused by different people in different situations. I'm really glad that she came on and we chatted about that.
2: Mentally, yours, mentally
1: yours. If you've been affected by any of the things we've been chatting about today, please give the Samaritans a ring on 116 123 or go online to samaritans.org. Thanks very much to Porna, and thanks very much to Sam Bonham, our producer. If you'd like to join us online, we have a Facebook group called Mentally Yours. We chat there about all things mental health. Also, we're on Twitter at Mentally Yours with YRS at the end. See you next week.
0: Hold up.